the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Societies around the world are adopting alternative energy sources such as wind and solar power. But contrary to the popular belief that they will herald unprecedented advances in our society's energy usage, they are in fact insufficient in providing us with lasting power. Societies come a long way in our use of power and generating electricity to bring people out of poverty. But if we become reliant on intermittent, unreliable energy, we are bound to return to a state of poverty and shortages in all aspects of our lives. Our guest today is Bill Fellner who will help us explore the facts about these power sources. Bill Fellner is a professional engineer with a Bachelor of Engineering Science from the University of Western Ontario. He worked at a consulting municipal engineering firm, was president of Springbank Development Limited, a land development firm, and was founder of multiple other engineering firms. He is currently the president of Willard Co. Limited, a multifaceted company with a history of offering marketing, consulting, and environmental advisory services to land development industries. So that's perfect for today's talk, environmental advisory services. So welcome to the show, Bill. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, it's great to have you on, especially because you've had firsthand experience witnessing what really goes on when they build wind turbines, right? (laughs) Well, with my consulting engineering firm that I had, uh, we specialized in all the undergrounds um, in municipal engineering, the sewers, the water mains, uh, the underground cables, uh, preparing the roads, building the roads land development projects, did an awful lot of subdivision design and installation. And You would have witnessed firsthand the size of the concrete base for a 60-story turbine. <laughs> well, they're huge. You know, we see them from, say, 100 meters away when we're driving down the road. But you get to those machines, and they are huge. That, that, mm. that uh, turbine you see up top is about the size of a train car. Oh, okay. They're absolutely huge. And it's fine to see them up there, but you've got to look at the, uh, how they, how they got there. What has to be done ahead of time? What, what is the logistics? Not only building that, but putting all the other infrastructure in. And yeah. uh, So, so let's say there's an empty farmer's field and they decide, okay, we're going to put up a wind turbine. Uh, Yeah. They got to make the wind turbine first, but, Isn't it quite a job to even get it to the location? Well, if you look at those three blades, each blade is 50 to 70 meters long. That's long. That's 170 feet. Uh Uh-huh. And to try and turn that around a corner is pretty difficult uh, when you're dealing with rural intersections. So we would have to go in, widen the whole intersection so they could turn these things around the corner and they have wheels at the back that move as well as the front when they're delivering these things. Yeah. And then you have to provide an entrance way to everyone across that farmer's field. You've got to move culverts. You've got to install new culverts, build a roadway, which requires uh, gravel because they have to be maintained year round. And they also have to carry the strength of the equipment to go out there and build these things. And now you talked about the 
the bases, the bases that go underground, they're the size of a house. A house and for one for one turbine. <laughs> generally use about 40 to 50 cubic meters of concrete oh, that wow. is buried in the ground. That is, if you see these concrete trucks going on the road, the big guys that have the barrel rolling around, you would need 40 to 50 of those to fill that cavity. Just for one turbine. Just for one turbine. And you have to dig out the ground, haul it away. You can't just spread it all over the farmer's topsoil. That yeah. has to be removed. Then you bring in about 150 metric tons of reinforcing steel, rebar as we called it. Uh -huh. It all has to go in there. The towers themselves take about 250 cubic meters of steel. Base for the turbine up top takes uh, even more than that. So that is a huge amount that has to be done before you can even think of installing that turbine. And then they yeah. have to bring it all in, all that equipment in, not only the blaze, but the, the tower and the turbine. The towers go up in sections. Mm -hmm. You know, my so, dad worked for Canadian General Electric at Dominion Engineering in Lachine near Montreal. And he said when they took hydraulic turbines, you know, very large ones to Churchill Falls and other places, they had to even take down all the telephone and telegraph wires. Uh, did, do you find that as well with the turbines? You got to take down telephone poles? If they are over the, uh, the, the standard height requirements, uh, which uh, in our area is around 14 feet. Oh yeah, and uh, a lot of them would be more than that. It's like it's like pulling a shipping container. You have to watch and move wires where you're going. There's so much that has to be done ahead of time. Even before the turbine starts turning, it's already had a significant environmental impact. Just getting the stuff there, setting up the foundation, building the roads, you know, <laughs> changing all the inf intersections, as you said. I mean, it's a massive job. It must, you know, it's funny if your objective is reducing greenhouse gases which I don't think is necessary, but if it is, you're already producing a lot of greenhouse gases just making and getting the turbine to location. Well, it's great for uh, us municipal engineers <laughs> to do all <laughs> yeah. that work and, and design it and and uh, make sure it's uh, up and uh, running. And, and then top of all that, you still have the hydro poles that have to go along to pick up the energy from all these things. And we're just talking about one turbine right now. We have uh -huh. 70,000 of them in Canada. 70,000? That's tremendous, yes. Oh, wow. And three blades each. You really have to think about the life cycle cost of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, when I had when I was in my environmental business with Purifix, which is a, a company that uh, purified toxic uh, organics and wastewater, uh, you learn a lot about about uh, the contaminants and and what's good and what's bad and and these these things. If you look at the life cycle cost, what's it cost to do the infrastructure? What does it cost to build it? And then what does it cost to get rid of it at the at its at its end? Yeah. Now, how long would they typically last before you have to get rid of them? Well, they say about twenty five years, but. They are continually repairing the, the blades. I can oh. remember going to a place a few years ago that was a re repairing a blade, and uh, they're traveling at over 100 miles an hour on the outer edge of those blades. So they're going at a good speed. And if they hit a bird, an eagle, 
it'll damage that blade and they have to be way exactly the same so you don't get a, a vibration. Mm -hmm. You would mm -hmm. have to take it down, uh, take it and, and repair the blade and put it back up again. So it could be as little as 20 years, I was understanding in some cases. Some of the blades uh, they have to uh, remove and, uh, and dispose of 12 years. They're not, they're not repairable. Oh, is that they're right? Very, they're very thin. You know, the people don't realize they're made out of balsa wood, which I, I used to use as a kid to make airplanes. Model yeah. <laughs> and then they, they skin them with a, a fiberglass cover, uh, which is the same way you make a boat hull. The things are only an inch or so thick, an inch or two. You mean the fiberglass? Strengthen them. Yes. If you oh, okay. look on YouTube, you can see how they're made. Uh -huh. They're hollow. Now, are, they don't degrade, do they? I mean, we can't just expect them to fall apart naturally. So what do they do with them? Well, disposing them is, a, is another thing. <laughs> it, it, you, you'll never get that concrete out of the ground. Mm. And, and they're using a tremendous amount of concrete. Yeah. People just think uh, cement is forever. No, cement isn't forever. Uh, there's a difference between concrete and cement. Cement's just the ingredient that binds all the the granular materials together uh -huh. in that space. But you'll never get them out of the ground. In fact, now I, I had one fellow here I was speaking to, and they were going to take one down and not use it again. And, and they were being told they only had to chip three feet or one meter of the top of that big concrete slab that's in the ground. So it'll never be used again. It, it's mm -hmm. a tremendous waste. When we're demolishing the building, that material is ground up. All the concrete is reusable. When you have this massive amount of concrete, as big as a house, you were saying, oh, under the ground, I mean, it's not good for the environment, eh? That's just a dead zone. Well, it's just not used again. And, and making cement, Portland cement, is one of the most environmentally damaging things, I suppose you could say, if you want to deal with carbon dioxide. Uh huh. Because uh, when they when they tear these things down, they they can't really destroy the blades. They can cut them in three and bury them, which is what they do most of the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's a huge mass to put in a in a in a, a dump. They wouldn't decompose, would they? No, they're you can grind them up. Um, into small bits, and, and I was watching a program where they're grinding them up, and now they send them to the concrete plants, and the concrete plants burn them instead of coal. Oh, is that these, right? A lot of them are, are made overseas, and they don't they don't care. They'll burn coal. Uh-huh. But we have blades that are made in Canada and the United States, and uh, they're looking at all kinds of ways to... Uh, dispose of them because they're becoming a big problem. But you'll never hear that on, on media. So 70,000 turbines across Canada, that's going to be producing a massive waste problem, isn't it? I mean, huge well, amounts will, of concrete. It will eventually, but nobody ever thinks of that. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You, have to, you have to think about these things. We always dealt with life cycles, when life cycle costs. Um, it's fine to, because we used to have with our, with our, um, machines that we would make, our reactors that we would make for the groundwater treatment, they were always a little more expensive than using activated carbon or charcoal, which is a norm. 
but that's just really transferring the contaminant into the into the the carbon, and you still have to deal with the contaminated carbon. Yeah, so, yeah. But the, but it was less expensive, although you're you're never getting rid of the organic contaminant like you would with uh, another process. It pulls the molecule apart. Well, you know, it's interesting. They call it clean energy, as if there's no pollution. I don't know. Did you see the film Planet of the Humans by Michael Moore, the left-wing film producer? Oh, no, I've seen a couple of them. He's been pretty disgusted with some of the environmental solutions. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, he shows essentially that they are arguably the dirtiest forms of energy on the planet. When you count how wind and solar power, you know, the the actual construction and the assembly and and disposal afterwards. One, One thing I always wonder is when they're giving the price per kilowatt hour of electricity generated by wind turbines, are they including the cost of actually disposing of the whole thing later? I wouldn't think so. They say they're one and a half million dollars to put up. Uh-huh. Well, does it include the labor to build it or the labor to do all of this, to dismantle them and remove them eventually? Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, the wind turbines do not produce energy. They transfer energy from the wind into electricity. Uh-huh. And they're transferring a tremendous amount of energy out of our weather patterns. Oh, now that's an interesting that, point. What is yeah, that, that doing to our weather patterns? Now, if, if you ask any of these um, academics, they don't know how to answer that. And, and mm-hmm. they don't study it. They, they can't study it or they'd lose some of their grants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the narrative that's there right now that this is good energy production. It's energy transfer as our solar right. panels. Yeah. So 70,000 turbines operating across Canada, I guess it's potentially possible that at least in local vicinities, it would affect the weather. It would slow the wind down because that's how you get the energy out. Well, the minute you take that amount of energy out of a local area, you're going to get a massive wave of energy coming in from elsewhere, higher Mm. winds. Yeah. Same thing if you pull a pail of water out of a pond, you're not going to see a hole. It comes rushing in again. Now, that's interesting. So if you put up a lot of turbines on a large farm, you might very well see massive increase in wind speed because it's coming in to, to compensate for the, the energy taken out of the local wind. Is that right? Let's say it's coming in at, at 15 uh, kilometer, 50 kilometers per hour. I always use miles per hour. Mm-hmm. And uh, it goes through that energy, comes out uh, through the blaze into your turbine, and the wind leaves at a much slower velocity. Right. So you really are affecting the wind, but I've never seen any studies to study that. And and our universities have the wind tunnels. Be an excellent thing to study, but they just don't want to touch it. You know, it's interesting, Bill. I often thought that when wind turbines slow the wind down, they would, in fact, be reducing convective cooling uh, in the summer. So let's say in a local vicinity, you have a certain amount of convective cooling, which we like from the wind, if you're slowing that wind down in the the immediate short term before other wind comes in, is it cooling or is it warming? I don't know. Well, it would it would be cooling because when you uh, if you don't have any energy in something, it's cold. It's Mm -hmm. only the activity of the molecules, the, the way our molecules are 
are uh, shaking and moving that creates heat. That's what heat is. Uh, cold is the absence of heat. So it's been removed or transferred somewhere else. So I would say there's possibly a cooling effect, another thing that is not studied. Right. now, that, that, So you have two contradictory effects. One is you're slowing the wind down immediately that goes through the turbine, which would give you less convective cooling in a hot day. But then, as you pointed out, and I'd never thought of this, as you pointed out, but, but then because the wind is slowing down, it pulls in wind from the surrounding regions, which would be increasing wind. So I guess the bottom line, I guess, is that we need to do wind tunnel testing to find out what the real effect is. Well, really, because the, the first law of thermodynamics is that in a closed system, energy can't be created or destroyed. It mm -hmm. can be transferred from one form to another. And when you have wind, you have a dynamic energy that's all of a sudden, being, a lot of it is being removed and turned into electricity. Dynamic energy and our wind going through there is lost. Yeah. So it definitely impacts the environment. You know, it's interesting. They say, uh, you know, that these things don't affect the environment, but they obviously do. I mean, we have 300,000 wind turbines across the world. I mean, who knows what impact that's having by, you know, changing the atmospheric flow. I would think it's more than 300,000 now. When you look everywhere, you see them. And the number of turbines they're putting up in the ocean. And the lakes are, are huge. They're bigger than the ones on land. Those mm -hmm. those blades are three quarters of a football field long. That's pretty long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I understand you wouldn't want to live near one of these turbines either because of infrasound, low frequency sound. But I understand penetrates buildings and goes right through the human body. Well, it does produce a sound, uh, sounds that animals can hear that we can't. Mm -hmm. Various frequencies. Yeah. Uh, now, now, before we go to break, I'd like to talk about how solar panels work and how they could be causing heating of the planet. Could you take that topic? Well, they're the same thing. Solar panels do not create energy. They bring additional energy in and photons from the sun, solar energy, and only about 20% of that solar energy that hits that panel is transferred into electricity. Mm -hmm. So you've got another 80%. Some will be radiated off, but some is going to stay as heat. You're bringing in additional heat energy from the sun. Right. So you can't say that they're not creating more heat because that sun is outside our closed system at the earth. Mm -hmm. You're bringing in more energy. And you touch mm -hmm. one of those panels, they're hot. Oh, is that right? They're heating all the time. So it's interesting. Around a city, they have what they call an urban heat island. So it sounds like you'd probably, around a large solar farm, you'd have a heat island as well. Oh, yes. And you're also destroying everything that, that was living on the ground before that solar panel because they never see the sun. Right, right. So once again, it's not environmentally benign. <laughs> well, it's basically a greenhouse, the same as the greenhouses that grow plants. It, it too brings in the solar energy and that solar energy in the greenhouse is transferred into the plants growing fast. And it also is staying in the greenhouse and heating up 
the temperature in the greenhouse. That's the mm -hmm. energy from the sun that's heating up the temperature. Now, with so the it's solar panel, it's bringing the solar rays in. It's using 20 to 25%, 22%, I think it is the maximum so far that they've been able to achieve. And that other 80%, it does not all radiate back into our atmosphere. Some of it stays on the ground. And uh, look at our clouds. Whenever we have clouds, you don't read it doesn't radiate as much energy back out that comes in in the sun all day to heat the ground and make everybody warm. Yeah. But if it's a clear, clear night, far more energy will be radiated back out. Mm -hmm. So or it makes you wonder. They keep talking about stopping global warming by having, you know, millions of solar panels. But it could be that the solar panels are contributing to warming more than the amount that they would reduce from the greenhouse gas perspective. Like, have they actually done experiments to find out how much the solar panels increase warming in a vicinity? I've never seen any any uh, study for that. Yeah, wouldn't it be amazing? Say, oh, it's, oh, it would be insignificant. Oh, it would be. In well, you show me the studies, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, you and I learned in the engineering school that one of the major things I learned at university is to question everything. Do your scientific study and prove what they're telling you. Uh huh. So now, it sounds like it sounds like a good thing for citizens to do is they should go to city council meetings and say, Oh, you're trying to stop global warming by putting in solar panels, but that's increasing global warming. Have you actually done the calculation? Do you know that it results in global cooling? And the bottom line is they would have to say they don't know. <laughs> well, they don't, and they don't want to know because it, it turns their narrative upside down. They are told yeah. that these are the way to go. And to them, it's hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. They just, they don't want to hear the other side. Yeah, so the net result of wind and solar power, if it expands to the degree that the so-called environmentalists want, and I say so-called because in many cases, they do things that are worse for the environment. But the bottom line is, these things may not, these things may upset our ecosystem entirely if we have too many of them. Well, we don't know that, but we should be studying it. Yeah, and that's the problem. Nobody's studying uh, what the reaction is. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah. yeah, we haven't been exposed yet to the reaction of all these things. Well, exactly. The and generations and... are the, our generations. Our kids and grandkids are going to experience what we have. Our yeah. biggest problem, I think, is pollution. It's it's not energy. Um, carbon. Tell me. Well, we can get into what they call the carbon footprint. <laughs> what is a carbon footprint? It's not, we're, we're what, is it 20, 25% carbon ourselves, our bodies? And we yeah. produce carbon dioxide. Well, we have to go for a break now. So after the break, can we talk about the, the carbon oh, we'll footprint? Yes. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really interesting topic because a lot of people don't know much about it. So, so stay tuned. I'll be right back with Bill Fellner. We'll be right back after the break. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company 
discussed the harmful effects of spike protein in your body, and now they found the solution. The Miracle Enzyme Natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget OUTLOUD25 at checkout. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code out loud. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Changing the world one person at a time. 
Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. I'm back with Bill Fellner. He's a professional engineer and for many years was a consulting engineer and in particular worked with a company that focused on an environmental advisory service to land development industry folks. So this is a a really good question that I have to ask you now, Bill. What are the problems with calculating and trying to reduce one's so-called carbon footprint? First of all, tell us, what is this carbon footprint? (laughs) Well, I don't know. I, they're really referring to carbon dioxide. Yeah. They couldn't be referring to carbon because carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen are the three building blocks of life. If you take any of any one of them away, there is no life on Earth. Mm-hmm. So they're just saying, well, then carbon dioxide must be bad. Then, you know, when I talk to somebody, these environmentalists, I say, well, how much carbon dioxide do we have in the air? Well, they don't know. Yeah. So I say, well, I know it's about 400 parts per million right now. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an awful lot, isn't it? And I say, no, it is not an awful lot. 400 parts per million um, is the same as in a football stadium. If you have 10,000 people, four of them would be carbon dioxide. Right. It's carbon a trace gas. Is it, it's is a, tra- a trace molecule. It's very, very small. Most of what we breathe is 78% nitrogen. You got uh, 20, is it 28% oxygen, which makes up 99%. That remaining 1% is made up of a bunch of other uh, rayon, neon, Argon. all the other elements, and carbon dioxide is only about 35% of that 1%. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's very insignificant, really. So so when they call it a carbon footprint, you sort of wonder if there's a little bit of 1984 in Newspeak there where they're trying to make it sound dirty by calling it carbon. You know, well, carbon is with, carbon soot. Fossil fuels. They're trying to say fossil fuels are dirty. We can mm-hmm. clean fossil fuels pretty fine. Yes, when you burn them, you create carbon dioxide. But who, who's, where are the studies that say carbon dioxide is, is causing global warming? Very little to do. It's the, sun's, the changing in the sun that causes global warming and global cooling. And it has for millions of years. Yeah. So when and they talk about it. Carbon dioxide is probably insignificant that humans produce. Yeah, I agree. So when they talk about carbon footprint, first of all, it's not carbon. It's carbon dioxide. And what do they mean by a footprint? What, what do they mean by that? Well, it's the amount of carbon dioxide that you produce. Mm-hmm. And the best way to get rid of it is tax it to death because our governments need taxes. You can't, you can't tax solar energy coming from the sun, but you can tax oil if you say it's bad or you're running out of it or it's, it's polluting, or you can ta- tax carbon dioxide. Mm, you can yeah. all kinds of taxes on gasoline and anything else that's producing carbon. If you're a business, oh, you're, 
you calculate your carbon footprint to tell us how much carbon dioxide you're giving off, and we got to tax you on that. Mm-hmm. Well, they take it- that money in because governments are starving for money. They only have three ways to make money. The federal government can only, they can print it, they can borrow it, or they can tax you for it. And they don't right. stop. They've never, a, a politician can't stop spending. If he does, he won't be elected the next time. And that's the main goal. You can't mm-hmm. blame either side. The main goal in politics, unfortunately, is to get elected again. You're going to follow the narrative too, no matter what side you're on. Yeah. So what are the tax implications of introducing this whole concept of a carbon footprint? Well, they want to reduce carbon from mm-hmm. 400 parts per million. If you drop it down to 200 parts per million, you're not going to have much plant life on Earth anymore. When no life of any kind. The higher the, the carbon dioxide, the more plant life you're going to have. You'll have a jungle on your hands. In greenhouses, mm-hmm. they, they import carbon dioxide by the tankful to put more carbon dioxide in the greenhouse to grow the plants quicker. Yeah, well, exactly. Because I understand a lot of the plants in our environment right now evolved at a time when CO2 was much higher. So to to a certain extent, they're starved for CO2. They love more CO2. Well, a couple billion years ago, carbon dioxide was 20% of the uh, planet. And that's when when life started. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know... You know Patrick Moore, who was one of the founders of Greenpeace. He's yes. now actually he's now actually on our board because he completely changed sides on the whole issue of climate change. And, and and as he put it, he said one day he looked around the boardroom at the other board members, and he was the only non-Marxist there. <laughs> so he obviously left them. But he may here's what he says. Now tell me if you agree with this or if you think it's possible or what. He says that. Over the last, oh, tens of millions of years, we've seen a gradual reduction in CO2, even though there's been a 50% rise since the 1800s. But over the last long term, tens of millions of years, we've seen a reduction. And he says that if humans had not started to put CO2 into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels or um, you know, making concrete or other activities, that eventually CO2 was headed down to the level of 150 parts per million where plants die. And so he says, well, we saved life on Earth by our CO2 emissions. Do you think that's exaggerating or do you think that's a possibility? Well, it's it's true. If you didn't have carbon dioxide, you wouldn't have plant life. You would have the type of condition you see on some of the other planets, Mars, no, mm-hmm. no life. But they don't have the same kind of atmospheric elements that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so it, you, you agree. I think he's right. I think that seen in a very long term perspective, we may very well have saved life on Earth. In fact, I've talked to agronomists who are concerned about feeding the future populations of the Earth. And they say, well, let's hope CO2 doubles, you know, and from two to 800 parts per million, because then we'll get a lot more crop yield. And we might have global warming. But when you have global global cooling people people uh, freeze to death we've had more stable populations in in the climate that is warm than climate that is cold we had over here ten thousand years ago two miles of ice over us glaciers, <laughs> yeah. and 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 then we had uh, the north and south polar tropical forests mm-hmm. 
Oh, that's right. Oh. They find dinosaur remains in the in the poles and mastodons. <laughs> and it doesn't take long. All of a sudden, the cool they are, they have found mastodons with food in their stomach. And, oh, is that and, right? And wow. Boy, if you have a super volcano or a meteorite hit and it clouds the earth with particles and, and water vapor, the earth's going to cool pretty quick. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I'm concerned about geoengineering. You know, like people like Bill Gates and others, they talk about actually engineering the planet on a planetary scale. And, you know, it's interesting, that Bill, there's a company in the United States where you can pay them a certain amount and they will calculate how much greenhouse gas warming you've caused. And they then put a certain amount of uh, particulate matter into a balloon, the payload for the balloon, and they send it to altitude and they distribute it in the atmosphere to supposedly cool the planet to equate to your greenhouse gas emissions. But you know, the thing that bothers me about this bill is we have so little real solid knowledge of how our atmosphere works that we could be near the end of this current interglacial. In fact, it's interesting, geologists that uh, I've worked with, Tim Patterson and others, you know, they talk about the length of the interglacial warm period that we're in right now. And of course, it's, you know, 15,000 years. But the glacial periods are much longer. They're about 90,000 years. And if we're near the end of the current interglacial, you know, maybe it's a thousand years away, whatever. If we purposely cool the planet, don't you think that's risking shortening the interglacial, making it so the glaciers come back sooner? Well, we're not, we're just one little animal on the planet. Mother mm. Nature and the solar system will do what it wants to do with our planet, whether we like it or not. If mm -hmm. come and gone, uh, human species of different types have come and gone. And what we do while we're here for 10 years or 100 years or 500 years isn't going to mean anything. That's, that's just a flash in the pan in the life of the solar system. You know, did you see the, the comedian George Carlin did a special on environmentalism? Did you ever see that? Oh, he, he was great. <laughs> yeah. He, I, I still remember the line. He said, save the whales, save the snails, save the bees, save the trees, save the planet. What? He says, save the planet. The planet's experienced a lot worse than us. It's had thousands of years of asteroid bombardment, lava covering two thirds of continents. And we're worried about a few plastic bags. <laughs> you know, his, his, I'll, I'll link to it under the podcast where people can watch it. I just give people a warning. He does swear a lot. But regardless, it's very perceptive. <laughs> well, if we want to continue polluting. Uh, we're, we will kill ourselves, but that's us doing it to ourselves. We yeah. haven't gotten into pollution, but uh, we have all this plastic waste. And uh, because people aren't using some products properly that is derived from oil. And when you look at all the plastic bottles that we throw away, those are made from oil. It's the way we dispose of all this that's, that's really creating the problem for us. Yeah, and I understand most of the pl plastic in the ocean comes from Southeast Asia. And just actually, I don't know, something like 80% of it comes from China and countries in that region because they just simply throw it into the river and it all ends up down in the ocean. So well, it's populations that are a little more advanced. I think if you go into the, the inner parts of Africa, people haven't seen very many plastic 
vast countries that are creating the problem and China is on, is on a boom. Well, not so much economically right now, but they, they make all the stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that actually brings me to this question. What would the world look like without oil of any kind? I mean, surely these plastics that we use in hospitals and for food storage and everything else, it just would disappear with not, without oil. Well, I look around my office here and almost everything has some form of oil derivative in it. Mm-hmm. Plastic, uh, wire coverings, you name it. And if you want to get rid of oil, how are we going to make roads? How are we going to make tires? They are all... or 8% of our roadways is bitumen, which is made from oil. That's the sticky black stuff that holds the roads together. If you don't have it, you can't build a road. You can't build a tire. A tire uses synthetic polymers, which are from oil. So Mm -hmm. you you look at some of this stuff, get rid of your cell phone. You've got oil to produce all those parts. And I guess paints and and all kinds of, uh, you know, special kinds of clothing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, if if people are sports enthusiasts, I mean, think of all the sports equipment, football helmets, basketballs, you know, they're all made with oil. (laughs) Yeah, it's pollution. It's it's what we're doing with with the oil. The carbon Mm -hmm. dioxide it's producing is nothing. It's the pollution that we are doing by using all these things and irresponsibly using them. Yeah. So it strikes me we've got to correct people when they refer to carbon dioxide as pollution. We should talk about real pollution. And we also have to ask people, okay, how did you get to this anti-oil meeting? (laughs) Maybe they came on a bicycle, but even the bicycle, a lot of it would have been made with oil. (laughs) You know, so how can we fight back against environmental extremists? What would you suggest? You've got to change our education system. You look at the teachers that we have now, 20 to 40 years old, they believe that carbon dioxide is a, a terrible thing that has to be controlled. Mm-hmm. And this goes back 30, 40 years, back to Agenda 21 that the United Nations have. I've got a copy of that Agenda 21 here. It's about Can three you quarters tell- of an inch thick book. Yeah. Now, can you tell our audience what is Agenda 21? Well, Agenda 21 came out of um, the 1992 uh, climate summit in Rio de Janeiro. And that's oh, where right. the term sustainable development came from. Uh-huh. And just shortly before that, there was, they formed globally a, a, a thing called ICLE, the Environmental Council on Local Environmental Initiatives. And between those two, Almost all large cities uh, adopted both ICLE and uh, Agenda 21. And uh, four main points. You've got to reduce our population. You've got to get control of of uh, the food. Because if you can control food worldwide, you can control the population through starvation or sickness. Mm-hmm. And you see it through ICLE, through zonings. It doesn't allow the farmer to build another house on his farm. They want glow, They want the huge farms. They want to drive people out and, and green the planet again and stack and pack everybody in big cities. Mm. And you've got to dumb down the education. You've got to indoctrinate children, not teach them. You're telling them what is good and what is bad. You don't tell them to question what is good and what is bad. 
Yeah, th this whole idea of not questioning. I mean, it sounds very unscientific because, you know, Tim, pa Tim Ball, who was our uh, lead scientist for quite some time, unfortunately, he's passed away recently. When people would call him a skeptic, he would say, thank you. <laughs> because, of course, science, you're supposed to be skeptical. You're supposed to question. You shouldn't just accept things as gospel if you're really being scientific. That's the primary focus we had in, in engineering. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. question what you're doing question what what everybody says because if you follow somebody that isn't designing that bridge and and you follow their rules it's not going to work because mm -hmm. you know more than that guy in the street that says you should do it that way one thing i find interesting is that most of the environmental extremists virtually all of them quite frankly have no training in engineering and science or very little you know, and it's and I don't think they even understand the history of the climate because I've had Greenpeace people come to my door saying, well, you donate to help us stop global warming. And I say, oh, well, will you stop the next ice age, please? And they look at me like, huh? And I say, well, that's a lot more dangerous than a bit of warming. I mean, I don't know if you've seen it, Bill, but the Lancet, which is a medical journal, very leading prestigious journal, they actually published a study uh, looking at millions of people across dozens of countries, and they found that 20 times more people die due to the cool weather, cold weather, than due to hot weather. So, I mean, humans don't like it cold, do they? <laughs> well, where do most humans live? They don't live up with, in the Arctic or in the, the uh, South Pole. They live in the warm climates. That's where our food grows, in the warm climates. Right, right. If you want to stop global warming... You better get ready to eat a lot less, <laughs> particularly <laughs> if you don't want carbon dioxide, because there's going to be less food to eat. Because That's those right. plants need the carbon dioxide that we're producing. And when people retire and they want to take off, they don't go to Alaska or the Yukon. <laughs> they go to Florida, you know, because, of course, we like warmer weather. With the weather we've been having this summer and now... Here it's 65, 70 degrees in, in Ontario, southern Ontario here. I, yes. I like global warming. I think it's wonderful. I don't want a cold winter. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'd laugh. I used to work in the House of Commons as a science advisor here in Canada. And there was a person from the World Bank who came to brief MPs about the dire consequences of warming by the year 2050. And my MP couldn't go, so he sent me. And I didn't realize that in these meetings, you're supposed to just smile and nod. So I put up my hand because he was showing a, a map of productivity of the world in the year 2050 with global warming. And I put up my hand and I said, you know, it, it's interesting because you're showing that we can now farm all the way to James Bay, maybe even Hudson's Bay. And that sounds phenomenally beneficial for Canada. You're speaking to a group of Canadian MPs. So this is a good story dead silence <laughs> he yes. wanted he didn't want them to see that he only wanted them to see the negative impact of expanding desert and yet you know bill it's funny because i was interviewing somebody the other day who's a specialist in carbon dioxide and and agriculture and they pointed out that in fact the sahara desert is shrinking because as carbon dioxide rises the stomata in plant leaves don't have to stay open as long and so they don't lose as much water so they can grow in places that are drier. So apparently the edges of the Sahara, uh, according to this expert, are in fact starting to become green. I mean, NASA showed in their satellites that 
We're having a massive greening across the earth because of CO2. So, I mean, that's a good thing. <laughs> yes, if you're if you're irrigating and, and farming, you need CO2 for those plants to breathe. Plants breathe uh-huh. carbon dioxide. We breathe nitrogen and oxygen. It sounds like one of the things we should do is try to convince people who should be supporting our point of view, people in the Conservative Party, for example, to stop using the language of our opponents, to stop calling it carbon pollution, to stop calling, um, you know, wind and solar power clean energy, when in fact they're very dirty in various ways. I mean, surely that's at least something that they can start to do now, even if they don't want to question the climate scare, they can at least stop using the language of the environmental extremists. Or, or question it. Just yeah. question, you know, why, why do we think carbon dioxide is, is bad? Yeah, it, it's interesting. At CFRA Radio here in Ottawa, one of the previous announcers, John Council, he tried to arrange an interview, sorry, a debate between me and some of the environmental activists. And they all turned him, turned him down. No, 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 can't do it, can't do it. We're not going to debate a denier, as they called me. But Al Gore's people, they said yes. And just before the debate was to happen, Gore's people from Tennessee contacted this local representative and said, no, no, you cannot debate this person because it will give credibility to the idea that there even is a debate. So it strikes me that let's say the Conservative Party of Canada wins the next federal election. If I were Pierre Polyev, and tell me if you think this is reasonable, I would say, look, I'm not a scientist, but I know that there's a lot of diversity in the scientific community. I'm going to bring in scientists and have open public hearings so public can hear the different points of view. And of course, the public would not know what to think because they would hear people like Tim Patterson and Ian Clark and various other climate realists, as we call them, talking about how CO2 rise has been good, how temperature rise has been good, and there doesn't appear to be anything catastrophic happening. I think the public would walk away saying, well, this sounds pretty uncertain to me. Uh, let's not spend money on this. So do you think that would be a good approach for Pierre Polyev to have open public hearings where the skeptical scientists get an opportunity to speak. Well, I think you do that by changing the uh, the outlook and and the one sided view that CBC has. Oh, God, you yeah. never hear the other side, and an awful lot of people listen to CBC, and you never hear the other side. But one thing I like about what Pierre wants to do is. Um, Stop taxing carbon. Ax yeah. the tax. Well, yeah. if you ax the tax, then government has no reason to keep making carbon dioxide a boogeyman. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. If you stop the tax. They're going to have to. They'll go after something else. Mm-hmm. I wish they could go after pollution. Mm-hmm. I wish they go out as a municipal engineer. I worry about sewage pollution, and right now we are bringing in. The other day. Statistics Canada said we're importing 1.6% um, of our population, which is 40 million now. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a lot of immigration. And every every cleaning product you pour down your sinks goes into the river. Yeah. It goes yeah. into the Great Lakes. All our big cities are on the Great Lakes. 
and they're dumping all their sewage into the Great Lakes. Yeah. It's a real problem. And uh, yeah. yet we are bringing all these extra immigration people in, and we don't have, look at the housing problem we've got. Where, how are we going to build this house another 1,700 people per day? Per With day. Relations that we have. Uh-huh. I'm in the development business as well, as, as I still am. And it takes weeks to months to years to get a building permit. It mm. is absolutely, the regulations are so horrendous and the costs are so horrendous. To buy a new house, you've got to pay almost $40,000 for a development fee. There's wonderful development levies that they have. Oh, That's wow. ridiculous. So it's interesting because people on the left of the political spectrum often want to have unlimited immigration coming into the country. But then they also want to have a reduction in CO2. I mean, those two don't work together, do they? Well, I don't think it's so much as CO2, but we've got to house them first or we're going to have a huge crisis. We can't house our own people. Look at the homeless we have. But we're getting off topic here. (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. And, of course, in the United States, it's even worse where they have, you know, tens of thousands of people pouring across the border, I guess, every month. You know, so I mean, it, it's have, a mess they down have, there. What eight hundred and fifty thousand homeless in the states right now? Mm. Same as the depression we had in the thirties, except none of us are were around to experience it. But we have the soup soup lines and homeless nowhere near what we had back then. And unfortunately, we may have to just let things run until it's hammering on the heads of the people that are are in our institutions and and political uh, areas promoting this kind of stuff and so, you can't fight or you're going to be oh i'm a racist i i don't or you're a big <laughs> i don't care who you are let's stop the nonsense and deal with this pollution and, and the carbon nonsense yeah real pollution let's deal with it and study it and see where we go and well you know time, don't destroy yourselves um with with plastic pollution human pollution everything we can't handle it all Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. A friend of mine works in water resources across the river in Quebec. And he said that as the funding for climate change has gone through the roof, the funding for water resource pollution, real pollution, has dropped. And so, I mean, yeah, we're diverting our money into the wrong thing entirely, wouldn't you say? Uh, Very much so. You know, people, politicians like to spend money on things that people can see and say, oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> but if it's a sewer underground, no, no. And we're building all these huge, big high rises in, in the cities and the sewers that were built there were not for a 30 story high rise. They were built for maybe a dozen or two homes in that block. Yeah. And yeah you've exactly. got several hundred people just exploding our water mains, exploding our sewers, and you end up with construction everywhere in your downtown cores yeah and imagine if they could divert all the climate finance because you know how much money is being spent across the world on climate finance it's just just incredible most of it's going to renewable energy they're spending over a billion u.s dollars a day now imagine if that was put into infrastructure i mean you know, we could have Cadillac uh, infrastructure. I mean, it would be it would be great. We've got to wrap up now, unfortunately. My well, we, guess... we can talk for hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But the problem is the people that will watch this 
are the people that agree with us. And it's so unfortunate. You've got to get out and talk to your neighbors. Yeah. Questions. That's right. For sure. uh, They won't listen to us. They won't listen to the other side. Their mind has been made up. Don't confuse me with facts. My mind has been made up. Well, you'll be interested to hear that we're on the verge of launching a new project, which goes and produces video shorts. In other words, 60 seconds or less talking about these different issues. I'll keep you up to date and I'll also tell our listeners about it when we're ready to launch the project, because it's just about ready to go. Anyway, my guest today has been Bill Fellner, a professional engineer. He's currently the president of Willard Co. Limited, a multifaceted company who works in various things, especially including environmental advisory services to the land development industry. So what we've been hearing today about the land impacts and environmental impacts of wind and solar has been especially useful. So thanks for being on our show, Bill. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I hope we can do this again sometime because it has to be done. More and more people that are talking on this side have to try and convince the people on the other side with facts not fiction yeah Yeah, exactly well this is tom harris and my guest bill fellner signing out from the other side of the story